There was once an explosion so intense that it caused a man to say, the light hit me like an opening of heavy curtains, of a darkened room to now a flood of light. The detonation of this explosion was so bright and so powerful that it literally reflected off of the moon and then back down to earth. It was measured in numbers, certainly measured in chemistry, measured in physics, but it would be forever talked about with words of astonishment, wonder and awe. On July 16, 1945, the Trinity test was the first successful detonation of a nuclear weapon. And almost 30 years ago, a historian named Richard Rhodes wrote a history called The Making of the Atomic Bomb, and it's a, it's a fascinating and boring and long book cataloging one of the greatest technological triumphs of the 20th century. His book begins very nerdy. A baffling amount of data uh, and people and places. You, you start asking yourself, I don't care. But it ends in, in somewhat of the most poetic terms where he said he aimed to have the achievement of his work to showcase a terrifying bomb to be something that you could feel as you read about it decades later. Within milliseconds, the blast had extended itself half a mile in diameter. Within milliseconds, half a mile in diameter. And it became a growing hourglass of fire climbing uninhibited to the heavens by thousands of feet. One, one person said who was seeing it says, I was enveloped with warm light from darkness to brilliant sunshine in an instant. I was stunned backwards. It was like opening a hot oven. It was a display of power. It was a display of might. And one of the reasons that it was created was to display a warning to the enemy of the United States with a promise of you do not want to mess with us. Our text this morning is the book of Hosea where we are witnesses of a God who promises power, force, and unrelenting love toward his people that is unparalleled and unachievable by man. But unlike the atomic bomb in 1945, what you witness in the scriptures is this seemingly tension between powerful, almighty, enraged God who is equally persistent in his patience, his aggressive love, and his dramatic redemption. The the minor prophets, which is the kind of big context of where the book of Hosea starts. The minor prophets as a whole show God's promise to his people that he will keep his word, he will keep his covenant with his people, even though they have been proving themselves not to keep their end of the bargain. They show God's call for people who are fleeing from their sin, think of it, through a warning that is devastating, he's calling them to come back to him. And in the middle of those two things, his power and his mercy, through prophets' words, he warns of judgment that will crush them if they don't come back to him, and also calls out to them that if they do repent, if they do return to him, they'll be met with grace and mercy. In short, the minor prophets are about God's glory being shown through his saving work by prophesied judgment. If you're new with us this morning, what we aim to do on a regular basis is what is called expositional preaching or expository preaching, where we we take the Bible on its own terms, submitting our understanding of it, our preaching of it, our teaching of it, to whatever the Word has and says, 
that's what we want our sermons to be about. Normally, we take smaller chunks. Uh, for the next several months, I'll be taking, for me, large chunks. The, the first minor prophet, which they're minor because they're shorter, the first one is 14 chapters. Uh, and I, I think it's helpful to see them, though, as these 12 minor prophets, as one big book with 12 distinct chapters, all with a consistent message running through them. Uh, it's like a 12 giant descriptions of God. So the first minor prophet for us is the book of Hosea, 14 chapters, and I think, for your case, helpful to understand two main sections. So chapters 1 through 3, I think, are one distinct unit within the book, and then chapters 4 through 14 are the second and final distinction within the book. Now, Hosea as a whole is a menacing prophecy. It is terrifying. It speaks dramatically and vividly of deserved and coming judgment of God's people. And in fact, it has a force behind it that shows itself over a hundred times within these 14 chapters. The word will, where God will do this. He will bring this. He does deserve this. And so he will carry out what is necessary. God warns of punishment that will inflict on Israel for their sins. Now, one commentator brings up some of these things that he will do from the text towards these people. He promises to punish. He will ignore He will destroy. He will sweep away, bringing shame, withdrawing himself, disciplining, devouring, laying waste, pouring out wrath like a flood, tearing like a lion and carrying off, catching like a fowler, commanding their fall, pursuing, sending back to slavery, burning cities, consuming their fortresses, exiling, afflicting with curses, bereaving their children, rejecting them, disgracing them, ruining kings, and leaving. And so it may surprise you that the book of Hosea is actually about love. This is not your normal Valentine's card, is it? I am so wrathful to you, Brooke, that I love you. It would be quite the twist on dinner, wouldn't it? This book, though, is about love. And that doesn't do away with any of God's glorious power and force towards evil and sin. And so you might ask yourself, and you should, what is, what is love like in general? Okay, what's love like in God's eyes? What's true love like? Imagine if there's 250 people here this morning, if I ask you what is true love, we would all have some kind of different answer. And what's helpful for us is the Bible actually does give us a concrete example and demonstration and purpose of what true love is. This is a book telling you what true love is like where the Bible sets the standard for love and the execution of true love. And so, firstly, true love, you see this on an outline if you have a bulletin, true love is glory through pain. The book of Hosea shows us that true love is glory through pain. Now, let me give away the goods. The first three chapters of the book of Hosea are remarkably shocking. God, through the prophet Hosea, will show what true love is like. And he says true love... True love will show itself through adultery. True love will show itself through adultery. Adultery is never good, we see in the scriptures. It's never good. And you know that. You know how it ruins lives, how it hurts, where pain seems to never leave. But amazingly, God's glorious and true love reveals his glorious love through pain by overcoming it, ultimately by God doing the unthinkable. 
where he goes after the adulterer and brings them back to himself. I think it's helpful to see these first three chapters as demonstrating what God's message is in this, what man is in the midst of this, what God's mission is in this, and then also the takeaway, what is the meaning of this peculiar and daunting story? So you got subpoints there in your, in your bulletin. I, I want you to see the message of chapters 1 through 3 are God showing a marriage. So chapters 1 through 3 depict a bleak marriage unlike the joyful weddings you and I usually envision. You may have kept a video of your ceremony or pictures. Brooke and I have a big book on um, a table in our house, and it has pictures from our wedding day. You look at those, and you recognize the joy of that because, in many ways, the, the smile is hopefully a catalyst of what will be realized throughout the marriage. But here we have the opposite, where it seems like photos are torn in two. Hosea, the man here, is directed by God to marry Gomer. This woman's name is Gomer. So Hosea is directed by God to marry Gomer, who repeatedly will commit adultery against Hosea. So Gomer bears three children, covered in chapters 1, verses 4, 6, and 9, and all of them are given names which, which broadcast kind of the curses that will be brought onto them, highlighting this rapid deterioration, where the narrative progresses from betrothal, you know, he should marry her, to the marriage, they are married, then there's adultery later on, and then finally abandonment, where she would be sold off into slavery. Can you imagine that in many ways, God demonstrates his love to you, Christian, today, through this picture? Obvious question is, how can God, <laughs> through this picture, explain to us what true love is like? Now, a teaser, these, these names of the children foreshadow the curses that are brought on them, yet... And you see this again and again in the book of Hosea. There's, there's, a, there's a fall and then a rise. A fall and a rise. You can almost see it like, like tension of, I'm, a, I'm about to judge you, but then I pull back in mercy. I should judge you, but I pull back in mercy. Here are these names, which you can see them. Those are not, those are not great names. My name is Asher, which means happy. And that's ironic in a lot of ways because I'm generally not a very happy person. But these ways are, are curse names. Not my people is a person's name. No mercy is a person's name. But, in verse 10, there's a hint of reversing of these names that emerges. Explaining further, God instructs a man to wed an unsuitable woman and her descendants bring about self-inflicted curses, but God is there to make what shouldn't be remade, remade. So that's the, that's the message. There's a marriage. There's also a man, Hosea, who he is, what he's called to do. You're immediately told in the book that these Words are divine and historical instructions to and then through Hosea. You see that in verse 1. Now let me, let me quickly say that this man was a prophet. And what a prophet was, a prophet was a mouthpiece of God, a conduit of God. A conduit of God's perfect word being broadcasted to people. Maybe you, maybe you played the electricity game. I don't think it's really a game, but the electricity game in grade school where, where everyone holds hands and then one person on the end touches a piece of electricity and everyone gets shocked all the way through it, right? In many ways, we see these prophets holding on to God's words in heaven, broadcasting them to us here on earth. So these are, these are the words of the Lord through these prophets. Prophets communicated God's pure word to God's needy people. Now, Hosea was a righteous man, and, and he was in and talking to northern Israel. So there was a breaking of these people in this place. He's talking to the northern people, and he was summoned by God to address the people of Israel. Now, it'll be talked about in other places in the book as Ephraim or Jacob. So when you see Ephraim, Jacob, Israel, it's talking about the same person. 
And it was in the 7th century B.C. So he has several sermons in here. We have a story about him, and then later on, it'll be a compilation of his prophetic sermons gathered together by him where he forecasted a coming downfall of God's people. And just 25 years later, after he was done, the warned about calamity did happen. So that's, that's Hosea the man. And his wife here, Gomer. These two are given to us as aiming to symbolize God being Hosea, and then Gomer being God's people. So you'll see this interchange in the first couple of chapters where he's clearly using this marriage as an example of how God treats and must treat his children, his people. All right, so you have the man's wife, but then the mission. His mission, or God's mission through this book, is to showcase his faithfulness to the unfaithful. So if you were to describe what God is like, you'd be right to say he is faithful to the faithless or he is faithful to the unfaithful. Look at chapter 2. They're kind of scanned with your eyes. There's, it goes from a narrative about Hosea to a prophecy. Hosea begins to plead with Israel. So he's speaking now to Israel. You can just see that. Say to your brothers, versus the word of the Lord in chapter 1, verse 1. So there's a change here and a little bit of aiming of the camera, where he begins to detail the complaint that God has with Israel and what, he's, what God's going to do about it. They've been unfaithful and it'll showcase what's about to happen. But starting in verse 6, toward the end of chapter 2, the tension is obvious, 6 through 15. There's expression of desired punishment against Israel. But then in verses 16 through 23, the words move from desiring to crush them to actually desiring to win them back. So again, the, the fall and the rise of how God's work, he would be right to judge, but he longs to show mercy. Chapter 1 shows a broken marriage with a call to win a woman back. Chapter 2 is like a, a symbolic divorce trial where the words of and from the Lord are the plaintiff, the prosecutor, the judge, and the jailer. And evidence of wrongdoing are given out where Israel, in God's eyes, is completely found guilty. And the gavel, you can imagine, being slammed down and Israel's future is certain. They'll face hardship. They'll face confinement. They'll be conquered and exiled. But yet... At the end, it says that God's people are eventually shown great mercy because God never forgets his own promise. Chapter 1, God spoke through Hosea. Chapter 2, his words go, or spoke to Hosea, and then chapter 2, through Hosea to the people. But then notice in chapter 3, the very beginning of that, it's like the camera turns actually toward the prophet, and the Lord said to me, it says. The narrative turns around almost back to chapter 1 bringing us back to this awful marriage. And this is really one of the most powerful, impactful collection of sentences in all of the Scriptures. Gomer was sinful. She pursued sin. She was swept up in sin. And then she was sold off to more sinful people to where now she is actually in debt to other people because of her own sin. She's broken. She's empty. Brought shame to her family. Beyond repair... She's known in this passage as an embarrassment to her husband, to her family, to everyone who would have known. Israel, likewise, was given everything. Israel was given tremendous freedom, freedom that they didn't deserve. They were given laws that would help them live life. And they were also regularly shown the power of God of whom they should follow. And yet, it says that Israel abandoned God. They refuted him. They didn't care. They spit at him. They appeared to the world as a prostitute, selling his glory 
shameful idols. It's like they, in their sin, dug a trench, filled it with more of their wickedness, and then bathed in it. But look at God's mission in chapter 3, verse 1. Then Yahweh said to me, Go, again, love a woman who is loved by her companion and is an adulteress, even as Yahweh loves the sons of Israel, though they turn from other gods and love raisin cakes. Hosea was to go out and purchase Gomer back from those who enslaved and oppressed her. She suffered consequences that she brought on herself, yet her true groom, at a tremendous cost, would purchase back for himself this broken vessel to be his prize. Friends, this is a a magnificent portrayal of what true love is. This undeserving woman, by her own doing, had her man seek after her once again. You could almost say logically he had no reason to do so. And yet it was in his desire to go to her and bring her back. This really is God's mission towards his people throughout the whole scripture. God's mission towards Israel and his people is like a husband's mission towards his wife. Glory, even when it's brought in by pain. Triumph, even when it's bringing on sacrifice. Now, I really hope you understand the meaning of this, this final bullet point within this first section. I hope you see that the meaning is obvious. It is a glimpse of God and a showcase of you. You and the effects of your sin, his costly love. This is what God is like. Friends, in your sin, this is what God has done for you Christians. If you're here and you're not a Christian, this is what we we think it actually looks like to be an unbeliever, to be a broken vessel, to be seen as incomplete or wrong or sinful or warring against God who gave you everything. You in your own action, by your own volition, have, have separated yourself. And yet, what we see God doing is calling out to you through all of that, through the costly pain of what it would bring you back to himself. And so we would encourage you to to hear what God actually has to say through this message. It seems like he's done with this northern kingdom. He says he's ready to do away with them, but almost in mid-sentence he turns, promising to take them back and bless them. A couple of months ago, I I preached a sermon series called From Heaven He Came and Sought Her. And for whatever reason, it seemed to be troubling for some people that 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 kind of pursuit of God would happen. Why would he need to pursue me? I'm doing okay. I'm calling out to him. Friends, recognize where Gomer was, which is a full representative of your heart. She was lost and sold off into oppressive slavery. But God, in his richness, sought after her, bought her back, to be his holy bride. And amazingly, there's even a more prophetic and eschatological promise given at the end of chapter 3. As as if it couldn't get any better than it already was for her to be purchased back, there would be wandering of God's people. There will be isolation of God's people. They'll be leaderless and have no refuge, scattered, despised, and hated. But then in verse 5, look at what it says there. There will be a time when they'll return, they'll seek the Lord, and they, there will be a king there, and they'll worship him rightly. In the meantime, they'll be lost, but at the right time, God will draw them back to himself. But interestingly, look at verses 3 and 4. This is where I think kind of Hosea isn't just a, a story from us, 
but a real demonstration of the beauty of the Scriptures as a whole. Look at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 5. This promise actually anticipates something more, uh, something more than Hosea just buying Gomer back. He buys her back, but does not instantly resume the marital relations. Marriage is renewed. She is his, once again, but a consummation is delayed. This may seem odd, but I want you to think of it through the lens of Scripture here, where Israel was restored to the land and was given this beautiful inauguration of promises whose consummation would later arrive for them hundreds of years later in the very person of Christ. Well, he will be for the people of God the true and better bride that was prophesied about in the book of Hosea. He will complete this this image of a seeking Savior by his death and resurrection where he will be toward his people something that they cannot refuse and something that they can fully enjoy because, as he said on the cross, all of the work is finished. It's amazing to see how this unpacks itself even for us. When Christ was sent to go capture completely his people, he did it at a great cost. You know this through the narratives of what it took to kill him, what it took to punish him, what he gave over as what is called a a substitutionary offering for his people. And through that, it would be hearts that are now able to turn to Him. So what is true love like? Glory through that pain of seeking someone that is unholy, but bringing it right back to yourself. The message of the Scriptures is that there was a time when the Son of God would come, accomplishing the purchase of His people through a substitutionary atonement. And we see even the, the beauty of it in this part of the Minor Prophets. So in many ways, chapters 1 and 3 are a metaphor for us of God's love. But this is where now the book zooms in, in verses 4 through 14. You can see kind of an overview, almost like a a prelude to an orchestra or a concert, but then now there's an unpacking of all the drama that's unfolding there. There are messages now from Hosea that are accusing the people of God, that are aiming to judge the people of God, but then will promise restoration to the people of God. The two sections are connected, chapters 1 through 3 and 4 through 14, they're connected by God's relationship with his people and his persistent call for repentance. Remember that the down and up, they deserve this, and by God's mercy they got that. I think it helps us to see the, the rest of Hosea, chapters 14, 4 through 14, as three giant brushstrokes, where through Hosea God will accuse Israel of their sins. He'll call them to repent. He'll promise them of what he'll do and all of that. So you see that on the the bottom part of your outline if you're using the bulletin. So what is love? Well, it's glory through pain. But what also is love? It's redemption through judgment. God's pure love for his people is their redemption. But it will come from judgment. Here Hosea shifts his focus to the messages of accusation. Just there in chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, listen to the word of Yahweh, O sons of Israel. For Yahweh has a contention against the inhabitants of the land. Because there is no truth or loving kindness or knowledge of God in the land, there is swearing of oaths, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They break forth in violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and everyone who inhabits it languishes along with the hearts of the field and the birds of the sky, and also the fish of the sea disappear. Yet let no man contend, and let no man offer reproof. Indeed, your people are like those who contend with the priest. God's word serves us. 
in a lot of different ways through a lot of different mer- um, metaphors in the scriptures. God's word is talked about as a sword, cutting one way and pruning another. It's a shield, defending us from falsehood, but it also, in many ways, acts as a mirror where it reflects who you really are. Some of you probably don't like to look at the mirror the first thing in the morning because you're like, oh, what happened? And this is how God, through his word, actually talks to you by saying, this is who you are according to truth. God's people here are accused of wrongdoing. There's an accusation against Israel. They're, they're sinning. That's what they're doing. They're sinning. So Hosea, through his words, highlights their disobedience. So get ready for this. Chapter 4, there's a false view of God where they have no knowledge of the true God. And Hosea actually blames the priests for this by not speaking to them and ushering them into the presence of the Lord. In chapter 4, there's a breaking of the covenant where they're worshiping other idols, sacrificing things to false gods. There's also immoral living. You, you saw it there, prostitution, drunkenness, defrauding, thieves, cheating. In chapter 5, there's corrupt priests, where priests are falling, failing in their spiritual leadership. They become a stumbling block for those who are entrusted to their care. There's also unfaithfulness to God. And the way that he talks about them being unfaithful to God is they're actually turning to other nations and other alliances instead of resting in the provision that he promised them. If you'll just trust in me and not going to the Assyrians, then I will keep you from falling away. But they did the opposite. In chapter 6, there's false repentance where they show themselves as sorrowful over their circumstances, but they're certainly not turning away from those evil things and entrusting themselves to the Lord. There's a lack of mercy where they actually act like the pagans around them. They, they don't forgive others like they should. They don't show mercy uh, like the one who has shown mercy on them. In chapter 7, they're described as blind, where they deceive themselves uh, and others. They enrage uh, themselves in political fights and military maneuvering without seeking the Lord. And then finally in chapter 7, there's a mixing of worship, where they practice mixed worship, combining the worship of God with the Uh, the use of pagan practices in worship. Friends, just through that list, and I don't think that was all of them, it's just kind of what I picked on and pulled from. All of those, I think in our sin, we, we see a haunting mirror in front of us. We're not worshiping like we ought. Maybe I'm not leading you like I ought. We're not faithful to God. We we trust in things like like IRAs or maybe a family inheritance. Or we trust in the number of friendships. We might have false repentance towards other people and certainly towards the Lord. How many times have you heard someone say they're sorry if, if what they did bothered you? You know, I might punch you in the face and I go, oh, hey, I'm sorry if that, if that bothered you. Maybe, if it did. If not, then I don't have anything to apologize for. We see this all the time in the scriptures. You see that all the time in your own life. Throughout these chapters, Hosea emphasizes Israel's unfaithfulness, his hypocrisy, or their hypocrisy, and their departure from God's commandments. The accusations serve as a strong rebuke, highlighting the moral and spiritual decay of this nation, who just not far removed had everything. But scattered within these accusations, again, are calls for repentance and pleas for people to return to God. Despite the severity of these accusations, there is a thread of hope of restoration that is still possible if people turn back from God. You see this as another unfolding of what is God's love like, his desire to redeem his people with and through the promise of judgment. So he accuses them. Hosea accuses them. He also calls them. 
He calls out to them. He preaches to them. He prophesies to them. The people of God are being uniquely called back in chapters 8 through 10. And God does this by Hosea predicting judgment that will ultimately fall upon them. He's basically saying, you are this, and this will happen, and you will not survive. And he does this in two ways. I think this is really fun. He does this in two ways. He uses, he uses physical language that all of us can understand, and then he uses biblical language that those of you who are in Christ better understand. Those who have the word of the Lord should hear these particular things and go, oh, okay. All right, but physical language. Just hear this scattershot of verses. Hosea 8.3, Israel is spurned the good, the enemy shall pursue him. Hosea 8, 7, they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads, it shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Hosea 9, 7, the days of punishment have come, the days of recompense have come, Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool, the man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. Hosea 9, 17, my God will reflect will reject them because they have not listened to him, and they shall be wanderers among the nations. Hosea 10.15, Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil at dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off in physical form because of their sins. What Hosea promises is that they will be overtaken, they will be crushed, and they will be cut off. Friend, this is really what sin does to you. This is your pursuit in sin, cutting yourself off from the grace of God, but also this is the effect of sin on your own life, crushing you, overtaking you. Sin hurts you. Sin hurts your soul because it keeps you from the king and all of his beauty. It hurts other people. But most hauntingly, it also separates you from God who is Good. You see the the kind of God who pursues an unlovely person, it keeps you from that God. Yet in his kindness, he makes you aware. Praise God for the mirror, right? He makes you aware of what's to come when you sin. And part of this is to be really horrified by it. To see the consequences of what you and I do maybe so regularly. Oh, we just mix up our worship with pagan practices. Oh, we just kind of ignore people when we're supposed to show hospitality. We're supposed to worship the Lord, but we don't. You know, we're supposed, to, we're supposed to do well because he has made us new. This is what sin does. So in many ways, be swept up by its warning and turn to God as Hosea has called you to. That's the physical language, the biblical language. What I mean by this is that Hosea uses what would have been previously had by these people. Commonly, they would have had the Pentateuch. So Hosea, this is what a lot of the prophets do. This is what all the prophets do, actually. They use figures and illustrations and examples from the previous parts of the Bible that people are being held accountable for knowing. So they're using powerful images to say, you thought that was bad? It's going to be done to you. He uses the golden calf in Hosea chapter 8. He draws a connection between the people's idolatry and the rebellion of their ancestors and says that they will face similar judgment. It was bad then and it will be bad now. He shows the rejection of God's law, meaning God's, God's Exodus 19 through 20 and Deuteronomy 4 law that was given to them for them. In Israel, in Hosea chapter 8, explicitly forgot God's law. They disregarded it. And their rejection mirrors the past of rejecting instruction. It leads to their destruction. 
He also talks about the wilderness wandering of Numbers chapter 14 and Hosea 9. They'll be like grapes in the wilderness. Imagery of disobedience, faithlessness while in the wilderness. He emphasizes the judgment that they'll bring on because of their current faithlessness. He talks about sowing and reaping that they would have known from Deuteronomy 7 and in Hosea chapter 10 verses 12 through 13 where God says that they will soon reap what they have sown and they will need to turn from it. And he also uses even bigger pictures than that, more obvious pictures than that, where their sins will cause them to be exiled from God's land like Adam was exiled from the garden. It'll be worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Assyria will overtake them like Egypt once held them. So I hope you see within this subsection, you see the prophet using words intended to evoke indescribable feelings of despair, like a bomb being tested and results showing forth that make you want to lay down your weapons and say, if that's who we're up against, it is not worth the fight. The prophet speaks vividly and biblically to make you, friend, turn from your sins and to come to the only place of safety. This last week, uh, I was cooking food for friends. I'm not necessarily great at cooking. So what do you do when you have a cast iron skillet full of grease? You don't throw anything into it because grease can pop out at you. Well, I'm not a genius, so I threw a steak in. Probably thought it was cool. And it burnt the entirety of my forearm right here. It hurt so bad. And I complained about it ever since to Brooke. Constantly bandaging. I may die. going to have to cut off my arm. And so there was a funeral held with a luncheon this week, and so I was in the kitchen uh, grabbing some food uh, with some of the ladies there. And one of the ladies just had a quick quip of saying, man, if, if something like that doesn't make you fear hell, then what will? And I was kind of like, yeah, man, that's true, because I'm, I'm literally dying, and it's, it's not that big, but it's big enough for me to complain about. But, but I'm not dying. And, and so there are so many images in the Scriptures where you and I will not survive the judgment of God, but we will be accepted by Him if we turn from our sins to Him. Do you see how these illustrations that these prophets will use will be so helpful, both in those days and in our days? But the prophet isn't done. He's not just going to accuse them or predict what's about to happen. He's also casting out words of grace and mercy to enemies of God. The, the word of deserved divine judgment is not the last word. In Hosea chapter 11, so you can turn there, the next section here, Hosea chapter 11, he'll allude to Israel's past salvation. So remember the Exodus, where God brought them through, saving them, and then gave them ways to live. He used that as a way to point them forward to a future salvation, to a final and full Exodus. You see, God's promise to Israel in chapters 11 through 14, this final section, takes on a new shape though. So if you see the beginning of the book, as a marriage, a new stunning metaphor takes place. The book begins with a relationship with a husband and a wife, a marriage. And I think it's dramatically showing itself to end with a relationship now between a father and a child. Look at chapters 11, or chapter 11, verses 1 through 2. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to graving images. The, the undercurrent of idolatry in this text is really that pursuit there, that they just kept going back to false gods, and one in particular, Baal. They kept going back to this God who proved himself 
to be not true and false. They, they kept going back. And the, the image here is like, a, is like a rebellious baby or child. I mean, you've all probably had one of your kids try to run away and they go a block away and then it haunts them that they don't know where they're going. The insanity of that, where are you really going to go? And here we have this seeming child going back to something that is starving them out. Hosea speaks to us through an expansive unpacking of Old Testament Pentateuch law. God's people act like a runaway child. Read the, read the next couple of verses. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them into my arms. They did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love, and I became to them as one who lifts the yoke of their jaws, and I bent down and fed them. Look at verse 7. So my people are hung up on turning from me. They were fed, but now they turn. Though they call them to the one on high, none at all exalts him. The more God, it seems, the more it appears that God pursues them, the more these children run to idols. Down chapters 12 and 13, they go from childlikeness to rebellious teenagers. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Ephraim feeds on wind and pursues the east wind continually. He abounds in falsehood and destruction. Moreover, he cuts a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. Look at verses 3 and 4. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his maturity, he wrestled with God. Indeed, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel, and there he spoke with us. Using illustrative language of Jacob. Remember that wrestling time? And Moses. As a backdrop, Hosea first says, you're like a young man, or you're growing like a young man should, but you continue to fall away. Like the rebellious child who keeps going after something, the rebellious child seems to know more, yet seems to continue to go into rebellion. You continue to fail, Israel, through your rebellion. But then in chapter 14, there's finally for us a picture of an adult being restored. The final section of Hosea prophesies Uh, or promises abundant blessing to the remnant of Israel that will one day return to God. There will be hope at the end. This This is a closing off of this chapter. Israel's future words of true worship are given to you there in chapters 14, verses 2 and 3, and they're followed by God's promise of forgiveness and great blessing in verses 4 through 8, where Hosea prophesies, and his prophecies are replete with predictions of doom for Israel in the immediate future, But by no means does this simply imply that the ultimate future must be so bleak. Quite the reversal. It will be glorious for all who repent. For all who turn to God in faith of trust. This this book says, in the same truth that you will feel wrath if you don't turn, if you do turn, you will feel everything that is good. This is redemption through judgment. And you can be sure of this by God's own word, through God's own example, and God's own accomplishment. Now, to conclude, I think the basic meaning of Hosea is what Moses prophesied about in Leviticus and Deuteronomy twice, that the northern kingdom of Israel has broken the covenant and will be exiled. And this is likened to a man being struck dead by the Lord. Yet after the judgment of the exile is poured out, God will save his people in the future as he saved them in the past. And this is likened to that man who was struck dead now being resurrected an apt image for them and for us. 
not only of God's people then, but also of, of you and I today, where the message is that God will come like a broom for his bride. He'll purchase her. He'll remake her. He'll sanctify her. He'll wash her with his good word. And then he'll lift her up for all to see, to show what true love is like. Judgment was poured out for those who are in Christ. Judgment was poured out on the person of Christ so that those who will be raised at the end would have true life and everlasting life. His people will no longer be treated like slaves, but as sons. You see kind of the arc of this from marriage to sonship. And we know that it did come, this foretelling. Though there are those of us who were wild and rebellious, we were removed from the center of joy and taken far away. Our lives were known as being broken or uh, we brought home embarrassment. But now look at what God does in Christ where he brings us to a table where he says, eat and be filled. You see even here the picture of the garden recapitulating itself where once there was an offering to Adam and Eve saying, take and eat and you'll know everything. And then at the end, we see this picture of Jesus actually offering his own people, saying, take and eat, because I have done everything. Friends, the message of Hosea could not be more bright and beautiful for us. There is judgment. There is destruction. But there is true love through it. Let's pray.